Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello, Project Zion listeners, and welcome to No Filter, where we will be having conversations about sex, sexuality, gender, and faith. Now, this conversation might not always be appropriate for young children, so if you're a parent or a responsible adult in the life of a child, please take note. I'm your host, Karen Peter, and today we have assembled a panel of women who come from an LDS background and are at varying points in their journeys of faith. Our topic for today's discussion is the role of women in LDS culture, specifically how the culture of patriarchy has impacted LDS women in general and how it has impacted their own journey of self-discovery and full expression of self. Our first guest is Lisa Butterworth, who is a licensed professional counselor specializing in helping folks with sexuality issues, faith transitions, and mixed faith marriages. She's the founder of the blog Feminist Mormon Housewives, and she plays a lot of nerdy board games with her husband and three kids. And Lisa was our first guest here on No Filter. So welcome back, Lisa. Thank you. Our next guest is Amy Cartwright, who grew up in the LDS Church and was confirmed in Community of Christ in April 2017. Amy Cartwright grew up in the LDS Church and was confirmed in Community of Christ in April 2017. She's a blogger with Exponent 2, which focuses on the stories of Mormon women. She's a homeschooling mother of two and a seamstress by trade and by hobby. Hi, Amy. Hi. Brittany Mangelson is formerly LDS and has been a member of Community of Christ for three years. She's pursuing a master's degree in religion, and she and her husband, Josh, have three kids, and she serves on the pastorate of the Salt Lake City Community of Christ congregation. Hello, Brittany. Hey, everybody. Nancy Ross is a professor and lives in St. George, Utah. She was confirmed in Community of Christ in December 2016, and it's good to see you, Nancy. Good to be here. I want to thank all four of you for your participation today as we share several stories that will be most helpful to our listeners in understanding this particular topic of patriarchy and what it means growing up female in the LDS tradition. So we're going to structure our conversation in the following way. I will ask each of you to share a bit about your journey in relationship to a specific topic and then ask the others to respond to that topic or compare or reflect on how their own experience or understandings has been a similar or divergent path. So if we're all ready, we'll jump right in and we'll start uh, with Amy. Amy, can you tell us a little bit about the law of chastity? I think the easiest way to define the law of chastity is that within an LDS context, it is considered the the guide for moral cleanliness. There are a lot of rules around what that looks like, and that might actually depend on your priesthood leaders for what those exact rules are. But in general, no premarital sex and no 
nothing like unto it. <laughs> As I said, the in the LDS church, youth are given what's called the Strength of Youth pamphlet. And in there, and it has changed over time. There, there have been different publications, but generally it will outline what not to do. And it's directed at youth, so it will... It will suggest not making out, not touching people that you are dating in anywhere except for maybe their face um, and, and things like that. Sometimes it can be quite specific. And I know that for me, I think I was first asked if I lived the law of chastity when I was 12 in my first bishop interview. And I had no clue what it was. I was a really naive, like in the most innocent way. 12-year-old girl, and I didn't really have any idea what he was talking about, but I figured that it was a bad thing, and I didn't do bad things. So I lived the law of chastity. And yeah, so that would probably, I, I hope that's a, a good enough explanation. So you said at 12, you were mm-hmm. asked about it, and you didn't know what that was. How did you learn what that was? I was given a first strength of youth pamphlet at that first meeting and then I was able to read through it and I I received the 1990 version I think and that used a lot of terminology that even still I don't think is very um very common for youth terms like necking and petting and things like that so I had no idea what that meant but I I kind of got the gist that I wasn't supposed to have sex with people and I wasn't supposed to make out with people so that was essentially what I learned with the law of chastity was was from the for strength of youth pamphlet. And of course it was asked in every, we we had interviews every six months when we were, uh, I think from 12 to 18, at least in my bishopric, we had interviews every six months. So I was asked that repeatedly after that. And then I knew what it meant. So that helped a little bit. (laughs) So to the community of Christ listeners, they don't know what you mean when you say we had interviews every six months. Can you explain that? Oh, yeah. So starting, you have your first interview with a bishop actually when you turn eight um, to be baptized. And that's usually a very benign interview. In my experience, they ask you if you know what the articles of faith are and how you feel about joining the church. From there, at about age 12, um, you start seeing the bishop who is kind of like the pastor of the congregation. And there are a list of questions that they will ask you during every interview. Um, questions about whether or not you pay tithing. Again, a lot of youth that age aren't making any money. So, um, but whether or not you pay tithing, um, if you're honest in your dealings with other people, um, if you have a testimony at the church and of the leaders and of the restoration, and then it will get into questions about personal worthiness, um, especially in regards to the law of chastity. So what sorts of physical things are you doing um, or not doing? Um, and that doesn't just extend to just other people. The understanding is that the law of chastity also bars Uh, masturbation. So sometimes you will have some bishops who will ask more pointed questions about that. Um, I personally didn't have any questions about masturbation until I was 18 years old and in a young single adult ward. And um, it honestly just really threw me. I was really surprised that this man was sitting across from me asking me questions about whether or not I touched myself. Um, and it was, it was honestly an extremely uncomfortable situation. 
<laughs> extremely uncomfortable. I, to be honest, I was so surprised and felt very violated by that conversation. And it really, it really impacted how I was able to really communicate with priesthood leaders in the future because I, when you're growing up in the LDS church, you're taught that your priesthood leaders are the, essentially like they're your conduit to God and that they will receive revelation for you and that, and that they can, uh, that they will help you through the repentance process if you have any, um, if you have any sins or misdeeds in your life. And so the fact that a priesthood leader would ask me these questions that were off book. So the question is just, do you live the law of chastity? And if any priesthood leaders from there decide to ask more pointed questions, those are of their own creation. So here I am, this 18 year old girl, um, and I had never been asked these questions before. So I presumed that my priesthood leaders felt uh, inspired to ask me. And um, to be honest, that really threw me because it made me think, well, what have I done in my life that what have I done that's so wrong? Um, what, like, what sins do I not even know I'm committing and things like that. So very, very uncomfortable. Um, and I actually like would start having panic attacks going to church for a while. I, I had to stop going for a little bit because of it. It was, uh, it was actually probably more traumatic than it should have been looking back, but it was really quite, um, it was really quite jarring for me. So that was when you were 18. What was the experience like as a young woman as you began to date and and look at what your life would be as an adult? Well, to be honest, I from 12 to 18, dating is considered just for fun. Um, like you learn how to date. So you're cautioned to go in groups um, or on double dates. Um, and so I didn't really have... To be honest, like I didn't really think about what life looked like um, in a relationship until I was 18. And then it comes on you very quickly. I felt, I'm not sure about the other panels, but I felt like as soon as 18 hit, there was this, um, this, now I had to start thinking about being a wife and a mother and it comes on quick. And, um, and then of course you have to start thinking about being in a relationship. To be honest, I don't think that I really thought very much about what it meant to be in a relationship. I thought about what it meant to be a wife and a mom. Um, (laughs) so, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of a, I felt like that was a big transition when I turned 18. Um, and then you're no longer, I mean, then some of the rules start changing. You're no longer necessarily cautioned to go on double dates because presumably you're marrying, or sorry, you're dating somebody who you might marry, in which case you might be in a one-on-one relationship. Um, but to that point, it's, it's very much advice that you go on double dates. And so how does the idea of chastity, the law of chastity and, and how it equates to personal worthiness how does that shape and form you as a woman as an lds woman um i i felt that there was a lot of there was a lot of emphasis put on young women to be clean and pure um i know Brittany will later talk more about modesty but this idea that you're kind of almost a gatekeeper and that you're expected to project innocence and 
cleanliness and uh, moral cleanliness, obviously, like personal cleanliness too. Um, but you're expected to project these things and that is what helps you attract a mate. Um, I did, I honestly don't know. I, I like, I can talk to my husband about what his perception was about the law of chastity growing up. Um, but that was from my perception. There was very little conversation about women's pleasure, about, um, like about enjoying like physicality within a relationship. It was very much about keeping things proper and clean, um, all the way through engagement. Um, and obviously until you were married, but my, when I talked to my husband about it, the law of chastity, when it would come up, like they would talk about like not having sex with the, you know, with your girlfriend or whatever. But the main thing was that they talked, they talked a lot about masturbation with the boys. Um, I, I think that was maybe why it threw me a lot as an 18 year old girl to have this conversation because I, I'm about to reveal my innocence here. I actually had no idea that women even did this and when I was eight, until, you know, 18 years old because it had never been asked of me. Um, it had always been presumed that girls didn't do that sort of thing. And so, yeah, so just this very um, solid idea that men sought pleasure, women were the gatekeepers, um, that men also should try to keep themselves clean, but... I felt like there was so much more of an onus put on women keeping things within the bounds of um, a proper relationship before marriage. How has this affected your relationship with your kids? Oh, <laughs> my kids are still pretty little, are still pretty young, but there, we've had a lot of discussion, my husband and I, about how we will approach the conversations around sex and whatnot. And to be honest, like we have a very open very uh, open dialogue with our kids. Um, I know when I was a little girl, like if an adult saw you, like this is a silly thing, but like little kids are exploratory with their bodies. And that was seen as something like you, to discourage. And that's not something we've discouraged with our children. Um, they learn about consent and that their, you know, that their bodies are their own and to treat other people um, with respect. So Uh, that's the main way that that has shaped how we've talked with our kids about sexuality and, um, and the role of pleasure with their bodies and things like that. Um, again, they're, they're five and seven. So the conversations aren't really big right now, (laughs) but, um, yeah, they'll get bigger. Those conversations. I I hear that happen. (laughs) The conversations get harder. You know, it's funny because I, again, I grew up very, there was not a lot of talk around sex or reproductive uh, body, uh, body parts in our house. And so that's something with my kids. Like they, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say in here. (laughs) Like they know what a period is. They know how a baby is made um, and things like that. But it's, it's been one of those things where I never really wanted it to be this big conversation or this big topic, or you turn 18 years old and somebody suddenly feels like they need to talk to you about these things. Um, And so it has really impacted my desire to just make these very casual, very easy conversations to have. Um, And I'm, I'm hopeful that's going really well. So is there anything else you want to say about the law of chastity before we open it up to our other panelists? Um, mostly just my perceptions of the difference between how that's talked about in 
the LDS church versus in the community of Christ. I remember having a conversation with a, a fellow in community of Christ that I'm really quite close with. And we were talking one time and I said, what do you do about like, if you've done something wrong or you feel like you've um, broken a rule or, uh, or whatnot. And um, his response was, I was never really taught that God cared all that much about my screw ups um, or that any of my leaders ever needed to know about them, that that was between me and God to figure out what needed to happen. And that is a very different model from the LDS model within the LDS model. Your business is your bishop's business, essentially. Um, if you do transgress those those boundaries, you are expected to talk with your bishop. Um, and to the point, not even just of, of talking to him, but like if you don't, then you won't be able to repent. And if you're not able to repent, then you don't get to be with your family forever and God will know and you'll be punished in the last day. Like it's pretty heavy handed um, how much you're expected to talk with these priesthood leaders. And so it is something that I've had to relearn as I've been making my way through my journey with community of Christ is how to handle my own guilt <laughs> um, or how to handle my own um, understanding of when I've hurt someone or mm-hmm. uh, maybe, maybe not been as much in line with the rules as I feel like I should be. So uh, that would be something that would probably be really helpful to know for folks who are working with folks who come from an LDS background. Well, thank you, Amy, for sharing uh, that. I'm sure some of that will be uh, similar, but other panelists, would anyone like to share in response to the law of chastity? Any comments? Anything from your own journey? This is Brittany talking. I definitely relate to a lot of what Amy said as far as being naive growing up. Um, The one story that sticks out for me, I never really confessed anything to a bishop, um, not necessarily saying that I never had a reason to confess, but I never was comfortable. And I guess, I don't know, the, the idea of priesthood being in charge of my salvation. Maybe I didn't take it as seriously as I should have. Um, But when I was 12, my bishop sat me down for um, that, that interview that Amy was talking about when you enter young women's and he went over the for strength of youth manual. And he asked me if I knew and understood the um, various terms. Like Amy had said, there was like necking and petting and all these outdated terms. Um, but oral sex was in there. And that for some reason, that was the one that I was like, nope, don't know what that is. And he proceeded to describe it. And he, he told me what it was. And so this was a, a man who was um, my friend's dad. He lived around the corner from me. I was 12, spent a lot of time in his house. Um, I was very, very uncomfortable and recognized that this conversation was not appropriate. Um, but I was 12 and there was nothing that I could do to stop it. Um, and I just kind of let it happen and I forgot about it until later in my early twenties. And I can't remember what sparked that memory, um, of learning what that was, but I remembered, but it was, it was a suppressed memory that I had had, um, and then recognizing as an adult how inappropriate that was. And I was able to, you know, dissect it a little bit more and um, do some work with that. Um, but, yeah, it's it's intense. And the, the power play is so uneven. 
and you are not even in the position to be able to process what's happening in some of those interviews um, as they're happening. And I think the impact is lifelong. Um, and again, I consider myself lucky to not have gone through a lot of invasive interviews, but that would have been um, my most jarring experience, I guess. Thanks, Brittany. Anyone else? Um, I'm, I, um, like overall, I didn't have the worst experiences ever as far as, you know, like I've heard much worse stories than mine, even though, you know, like I had a, a situation that was a little, you know, fairly similar to Brittany's, but maybe not as explicit. Like he didn't, he, like, I didn't, I didn't know what he was talking about. And when he tried to explain to me, I still didn't know what he was talking about when he was trying to explain. And again, it was my friend's dad who lived around the corner and I was really uncomfortable and it was just really inappropriate. Although I didn't realize that at the time. Right. Um, but there's a couple of experiences that this sort of informed for me later. And, you know, like one that comes to mind was um, like when I first went to college, this man, a very large, muscular man who was in my ward sort of cornered me and informed me that I was supposed to date him in, a, in this office. And I felt very uncomfortable. And I... I, I told him I didn't want to, and he sort of informed me that that I didn't have the, like, that that wasn't my place to choose, you know? And I, I didn't really believe him, but I kind of did, right? And that was super confusing because at the same time that there was something in me that pushed back against that and said, no, I, I get to choose. The way he stated it was sort of putting on this mantle of authority of, like, you don't have, you know, like, I'm the one who knows. And that was so ingrained through those types of interviews that even that, even though I'm a very independent person and I'm not easily, like, cowed or cornered or told what to do, and obviously that served me well in this instance, that was a very, I remember that being very confusing to me, and I, and I, and, you know, now, now later looking back on it, I kind of put those kinds of those kinds of experiences into this like column of, oh, OK, so my culture taught me not to trust my own instincts on things. And I and I realized that, you know, like had I had a different personality or maybe some different experiences with parenting or something like I could have very well become a victim of abuse through, through, you know, like these kinds of, through these kinds of experiences. And I was lucky enough not to, but it, it wasn't the culture that protected me, you know, like it was some other factors that I was, I was lucky in. And then another thing that I guess the way that I processed this was that like, as I came into a sexual awakening, as I started feeling desire for men, for boys, I didn't have a context for that because the way that sexuality was presented to me was that I was the gatekeeper. I was the one that was supposed to prevent the boys from making bad choices. And that wasn't the way I experienced it. You know, like I wanted to make out with the boys. I wanted to touch them. Like I wanted to do that. And so that was very confusing for me because I felt like there was something very wrong with me. 
I, I remember like thinking that maybe like, like that there was something too masculine in me and that maybe I was broken in some way because I felt all this desire because, you know, like it was a very high desire young person. Um, so that was another way that it sort of affected me. Thanks, Lisa. Anyone else want to add to that? Yeah, I had, um, you know, an experience similar to what Brittany described. My only, as a teenager, my only bad interview was the first one, you know, and I was 12 and there were similar kinds of things that happened. And um, the bishop was my best friend's dad. And before the interview, you know, my, my mother was a Mormon feminist. And so she was all like, do you want me to go in with you? And, and I didn't have a great relationship with my mom. And so I was like, definitely not. Like I, I didn't really know what the interview was about. And I, you know, I think she fully did understand, even though she did, wasn't, um, didn't grow up LDS and, and then this really weird thing happened. And I felt so like, I just felt like, guilty and ashamed, like where where there should have never been guilt or shame. Um, and then, and then my parents asked me afterwards, like, did that go okay? And I felt obliged. I felt like I, I had like done something wrong in there and in that space. And so I felt obliged to be like, no, it was fine. Even though, even though it really wasn't fine. And, um, it was also a memory I suppressed for a long time. Um, and then maybe only th- kind of remembered more recently when other people in our Mormon feminist community started talking about this sort of thing. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, wait, that happened to me too. And that was very, very disturbing to remember. And I would never, you know, like I, my children are nine and 10 and I would never permit people to ask very personal questions of them or even give them information, you know, without that that's just not a situation I'm, I would ever be comfortable with, um, under any circumstances. And, and, um, and, and, and I felt guilty that I hadn't let my mom in or bad that I hadn't let, but then I felt like if I owned up to the awkward thing that happened, that I was somehow at fault. Like even, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that there are some of us who view even just these interviews as abusive, you know, that nothing, you know, no inappropriate physical contact needs to happen for them, for, for abuse to happen and for us to have strange responses, whether it's panic attacks or feeling weird about it or like trying to suppress the memory and just like get rid of it somehow. And, you know, that that's, um, deeply problematic, but I would also say that, um, I am not, I don't identify my sexuality as straight or heterosexual that I am bisexual. And as a teenager, I just really wasn't very interested in boys until I got a boyfriend when I was about 16. Um, and so I couldn't figure out why people would want to have sex with boys because it just seemed like a really revolting thing to do. Um, and, but I also, then it didn't, so if the default was heterosexuality and there, I knew that there was this thing called homosexuality and that was like super bad and the worst, um, but also generally involved men and not, and not women, there was no way for me to develop a healthy sexual, se- um, sexual identity because the, the whole focus was on like, don't have sex with boys. And I'm like, okay, I've got that down. Um, and I thought that I was just like super righteous as <laughs> a was very self-righteous teenager. I just thought I was just like really righteous because I just didn't really want to have sex with boys. And that must be some kind of testament to my great inner goodness or something. Um, but 
But there was nothing about this conversation about sex or sexuality that really acknowledged women's sexuality or that women have, you know, uh, sexualities beyond heterosexual. And that was very confusing to me as a teenager. There was just a lot that didn't make sense there for me. Um, but it also there was never a healthy place to be able to explore um, my bisexual identity. And, and that was... You know, I think that that's frustrating. I wish, you know, I wish I'd had um, a supportive community and environment for, for being able to um, that would acknowledge uh, other other sexual identities. So thanks, Nancy. Amy, did you have one more comment? Yeah, I just so I, I'm about to air a little bit more than I had planned to, but um, when I was a young adult, I did transgress the law of chastity with my um, boyfriend at the time, and um, I remember when I I hadn't been attending church. I actually stopped attending because I was having so many like terrible feelings about going to church after those interviews. Um, so I had stopped attending and I had this, you know, boyfriend that I really loved. And like, um, like some of the other commenters have said, like, I was so surprised by my own desire for someone. Um, so that was something I felt like I never had really learned how to, I don't want to say handle as if it was a bad thing, but like how to proceed with that. Um, and I, I did, I felt very base for, wanting this person that I was in love with and um but fast forward through that relationship to it it ended and um and then I felt this desire to come back to church because I was you know it was so heartbroken and I felt like I was so heartbroken because I had done something so wrong and um I remember actually talking with with that boyfriend we, we stayed friends afterwards and I said I don't I mentioned I was like I don't know how I'm ever going to go and talk to this bishop about what I've done. Like I've done something so terrible. And, and he was, he was not raised LDS. He was very familiar with the church. He had taken the missionary discussions and things like that. A few, uh, you know, over a course of a few years. Um, But his response was that he, he didn't understand how it was ever okay for a man to ask a young woman these questions. And that was the very first time that I ever even questioned if it was appropriate. Um, and I, you know, in my response, of course, at this time is I was, I was feeling so terrible about what I had done that I was like, it doesn't matter that it's not appropriate. I need to be clean for God. Um, and so, I mean, so I did, I, you know, went and confessed um, to this bishop and I found something else that I, I'm not sure if this is everyone else's experience, um, but I know for me, years later, it was about three years later, I was getting ready, or two years later, I was getting ready to go on an LDS mission. I had, my life had changed very much. I had moved. I started attending BYU and I felt this great desire to serve a mission because I felt like the Lord had changed me so much. And, um, and it actually came up in my, interviews to go on a mission and all over again I had to be asked these questions um and and again just very invasive uh thing like I was asked like how many times I had sex with my boyfriend and what kind you know like just very invasive very personal questions um and it it honestly left me feeling like at first I had felt like I had done everything that I could to be clean before God. And now I, and then I questioned, well, can I ever be clean before God? If it's going to keep coming up, like if I'm going to be asked all the time 
um, what, what I have done if I can never put this in the past. And so I think for me, it really messed with my feeling of, um, of standing before God of, um, of worthiness. And, uh, it's something I honestly, I battled quite long into my marriage with my husband. Now this feeling of, you know, like, have I done something wrong? Have I, um, not, and that can mean a lot of other things, but, um, just this feeling of constant guilt of feeling like I can never feel okay for the things that I have done. Um, and that's, I mean, that's something I've been married nearly 10 years now and I'm still trying to work through those feelings. So, um, I, I, I think those are things that last a lifetime. Thank you, all of you, for your very frank and um, honest uh, and open comments on on this, our introductory topic. So we'll move on. Uh, and Brittany, we're going to talk a little bit about the code of modesty. And, and Amy, you had made uh, a comment when you started out about uh, being the, the gatekeeper, that others shared that as well. And I think that leads us kind of into this code of modesty. So Brittany, what is that? And how does it begin to take shape in the life of young girls? So modesty in the LDS church is a very, very, very important thing. If you are a woman, um, when adult women go to the temple and become endowed, they wear temple garments, which, um, are usually like a cap sleeve shirt and then, um, underwear that goes, it's supposed to go to the knee, but it usually doesn't, um, usually a couple inches above the knee. And so there's this idea that when you are preparing to go to the temple, whether that's a three-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 23-year-old, um, that you should be living a modest life. And they're not talking about, you know, modest in consumerism or anything like that. It's strictly a, a dress code. And so um, I have to say that from my experience, I grew up in the 90s. I was born in 88. And modesty was not as focused on when I was growing up that I think that it is now. I think it's kind of on like this hyper feed. Um, but it was still talked about. So I would have lessons where my young women's leaders would say they would almost brag in a way. And, and it, it, they weren't being, maybe brag's the wrong word. Um, but they would talk about how excited they were or how happy they were that when they were in doubt, they didn't have to get rid of any of their clothes because not all clothing is suitable for temple garments. The necks are rather high. Um, the back is high as well. Um, and so, you know, there's no sleeveless stuff. There's no shorter skirts, um, shorts, etc. And so it was always kind of seen as a challenge to live as though you're always wearing temple garments, because then when you go to the temple, you won't have to get rid of any of your clothes. And there would be, um, lessons like stories and lessons about this or articles in the teen, um, magazine, which is called the new era, and I internalized that a lot. Um, I um, definitely thought that it was my responsibility to protect the young men around me from having impure thoughts. Um, those, those ideas were pounded in my head pretty strongly. Um, 
But I was also involved in dance from the time I was three, and I danced with Brigham Young University, and we would wear tank tops, and we would wear leotards and proper dance attire, and it was always really confusing for me, because on one end, I wanted to be this good, righteous Mormon girl, which I was, um, but then to kind of have my body be used... um, for the sole purpose of entertainment or for a show. Um, that's what dance is. It's an art. Um, there was a, a lot of internal conflict there. And so I could go to dance and I could wear shorter things or tighter things. And then suddenly it was inappropriate to wear, you know, the same tank top that I wore to dance. It was inappropriate to wear it on the playground even if it was, you know, just like a cotton tank top. And so that made me feel very disconnected from my body. Um, My body really became an an item to be consumed for everyone else. It was either being consumed in the dance world, or if I wasn't dressing it properly, boys were consuming it with their eyes. And I can't remember the year that Oaks, Dallin H. Oaks, said his famous quote that, um, when girls, when young women don't dress modestly, they become walking pornography. But I'm pretty sure that happened when I was in high school. And um, it impacted me deeply. This idea that, you know, pornography is very, very bad in Mormonism. And that is something that would be worthy of going to a bishop and confessing about. And so if you are dressing immodestly, you become walking pornography to the boys around you. Um, it created a lot of shame for me and my body because if I ever was wearing something, you know, I would kind of check myself and, oh, maybe these sleeves are too short or maybe this is too tight or maybe whatever. And I would have a lot of guilt and I would second guess all of my interactions with boys because if they were being flirtatious, were they only being flirtatious because maybe my sleeves were too short? And um, it just really made me become disconnected from my my own body. Um, and then again with dance, there was this, um, I felt like I was justifying things and, uh, we've seen in the news how a lot of, uh, schools in Utah will get pushed back with cheerleaders, outfits, etc. Um, and so I, I dealt with a lot of that internal conflict and it just kind of made me really disassociate and distrust my body, I would say. So there was an article not too long ago, and I think it came out of Provo about a high school cheerleading squad that was told they could no longer wear their cheerleading uniforms to school because one boy had gone to the principal and said that the uniforms were causing him to have impure thoughts. What would you say to that? Yeah, I can relate to those news stories a lot. Um, I don't think that, I can't remember if my dance team was ever um, explicitly challenged for things that we had worn. Um, but I think it, it shows it's a symptom of the overall culture that women, young girls, um, their bodies need to be on display just enough to be entertaining, to be um, consumed in a level that's just kind of that sweet spot of, you know, we, we want you to perform for us, but you have to find that that spot of, okay, now you, you've crossed the line now because your sleeves are too short or your dress is too um, short, et cetera. I know that volleyball players have also gotten a lot of heat in Utah um, because of the short, uh, you know, biker shorts that they wear. Um, personally, I think the whole thing is ridiculous. 
Uh, but I do think that it's also an understandable byproduct of how we hypersexualize women's bodies and they're just for consumption, um, which is really unfortunate. So how do you think this influences how women perceive their own sense of selfhood? So I know for me, um, one of the first things that happened when I came to Community of Christ or when I was discovering Community of Christ is I wanted to know if temple garments were worn. Because for me, um, wearing the garment felt very much like I was being stripped of my identity. And um, it's supposed to be a constant reminder of the covenants you make. But for me, it was a constant reminder that I was not in control of my body. Um, and it, it also, um, pits women against themselves. So I've seen recently, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, mommy bloggers, fashion bloggers in Utah that, uh, might push the modesty boundaries a little bit. So whether, um, well, garments come in different shapes and sizes, there's different cuts, there's different materials. And so if you are taller and you get a petite style, then it's shorter on your legs. So you're afforded shorter skirts, shorter, whatever. Um, technically you're still wearing your garments, but you're not necessarily being modest by, you know, the book standards. Um, and so not only are women having internal conflicts with themselves, but then if they see someone who they know is, um, maybe in the public eye, but they're not wearing something that they would be able to get away with, it really pits women against themselves. So if you go on Instagram, um, there's dozens of women that fall into this category that uh, will be wearing a shorter skirt or a shorter sleeve or a deeper neckline. Um, and they will get comments from, you can spot the Mormons because they'll say, how do you wear garments with that? Or, oh, I wish my garments would let me wear that. And there's even internet forums where women are just discussed and debated. Um, and so I have never been the subject of one of those forums, but I can only imagine um, how that would feel. And to have your body be up for discussion have your clothing be up for discussion um, by random internet strangers and let alone, you know, people on the street in the grocery store, et cetera, that will automatically judge you because they think you are or are not wearing garments. So you live in a extremely Mormon community. I do. <laughs> so how has this code of modesty affected you, how you dress the girls, your daughters, um, now that you are no longer um, LDS, but you live in a LDS-saturated uh, context. Yeah, so for the first, I would say, summer, summer or two, um, first couple of years, I was still dressing very much LDS because if I went out in a tank top, that was a very clear signal. And I was comfortable with where I was at um, with my faith, and I was becoming more comfortable with my relationship with my body. Um but I still wasn't ready to publicly claim that, if that makes sense. I remember, um, well, I just went to spec just this last summer and seeing a lot of the leaders wearing shorts that they would not be able to wear temple garments with, but they were just wearing shorts that are an appropriate length, that are a normal length. Um, you know, they're not necessarily big Bermuda shorts. Spec. For those who might not know what that stands for, is a camp where Community of Christ young 
people, senior high kids, come from all over uh, the United States and Canada and participate together for a week of sports, fine arts, community building, and faith experiences. You are right. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> um, but I was able to just see women, grown women, being in charge of their own clothing. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And I had actually packed a pair of shorter shorts that I hadn't worn yet. And it was like the second or third day that I thought, okay, so-and-so is wearing shorts that are that short. They're wearing short. I got this. And I put them on and it was great. Um, but it took me a long time to, to gain the confidence to be able to do that. Um, with my daughters, their school does not allow, allow shoulders to be shown of any kind. And, and so when I say that I think the modesty rhetoric has been bumped up a notch, when I was going to school, we could have a three-finger strap. So as long as we could have three fingers on our shoulder, that was okay. Uh, but my girls can't have any shoulder showing at all. And so, um, and, and I have to be honest, I didn't necessarily read the dress code before I sent my kids to school. So when they were in uh, kindergarten, we just sent them to school and they were wearing tank tops and they were thick strap tank tops. Uh, but we got a note home from school just reminding us that shoulders were not appropriate for kindergarten. And so I had to tell my daughters that, sorry, all these summer clothes that you've been wearing are only going to be for home now. Um, and they do not think that that is normal at all. Um, and so I have never, um, well, I try to be really open about my body. Um, you know, I'll change in front of my girls. I get in the shower in front of them. Um, I, I try really hard to not be shy about my body because I don't want them to have a, a complicated relationship or as complicated of a relationship that I have had with my body. Um, and the layers of shame that I've had to work through. Um, because again, my body was always meant to be consumed, but only to a point. Um, and it was my responsibility to find that point. So I didn't push men, um, you know, to do things to me, uh, because of what I was wearing. And so I've been very, very, um, clear with my daughters that, you know, you can wear whatever you want at home. I mean, and I really don't have a strict, dress code with them. Even when we go to church, I don't make them wear dresses. They've worn tank tops and jeans to church. You know, I'm, I'm not going to um, try to control what they put on their bodies in that way. But it is interesting because, I mean, when I go out in, in my neighborhood or at the grocery store or whatever, and if I am wearing a tank top or shorter shorts, I do get treated differently um, because people know that I'm not LDS or I'm not a good LDS person. Um, which is unfortunate that people just aren't as friendly and they're not as, they're not as talkative. And there definitely is this like cultural wall that I put up when I'm out and about and I don't have that like garment smile line on my back. <laughs> Would anybody else like to say anything about this uh, code of modesty that Brittany has been addressing? Amy? Um. I was just thinking about what Brittany said about how you kind of get the sense that your body is to be consumed and that's not your own. I know that was something that as I was transitioning out of Mormonism or considering transitioning out of Mormonism, that was something that was really difficult for me, especially as I, I had just had my second baby at the time. And so I, you know, I, had given up my body for this little person and, uh, was breastfeeding her at the time. And I remember, um, 
having this moment where I, I actually questioned, this is, this is really personal, but like whether it was worth taking care of my own body now, because I had always been taught that my body was somebody else's and, um, that all these people cared about how my body looked, um, what the clothes were that were on it. And, um, and here I was in a position where I realized that I maybe had to do things because they were maybe good for me or because I felt they were good or, um, and this is not as much about clothing as it is about other like self-care things, but, um, but that definitely hit home that lesson that, um, that my body was to be consumed by, uh, by my husband or by my children. Um, and, and again, that's another one of those things that I feel like I'm still working through to this day and, uh, that, you know, we just keep working through. And I'm not sure how much of that is totally just an LDS thing. I know that body image and like ownership is something that women across faith traditions and even, you know, people who are not religious that they also deal with. But I feel like that rhetoric is really ramped up, um, within an LDS context. Um, for me personally, when I, I live in a cold climate, I live in Canada. Um, I, for me, giving up garments is actually kind of difficult. I felt that, um, I don't live in a very heavy, heavily populated LDS, um, area. And there, I mean, there are lots of, um, members of the LDS church up here, but not nearly what there is in Utah or Idaho. And, um, I, they had become such a self-identifying um, part of my life. Um, I know Brittany mentioned that they, she felt like it kind of stripped her individuality, but in a place where there aren't many Mormons, they were, they were like, they were the way that I could spot who else in the grocery store was um, maybe like me, um, where maybe I felt a little bit more alone. And um, while I have some definite issues with how modesty was treated for me, giving up garments was really difficult for that reason. Um, and that just came from a place of feeling like that wasn't an authentic choice now to continue to, to wear them. So I, I think it's a, it's important to remember that people are going to have really complicated relationships with, um, with modesty and with how temple garments fit into that. Um, that, that might look different for lots of different people. Thank you, Amy. Anyone else want to speak to modesty and the code of modesty? Um, I was going to say, for me, I'm a little older than a lot of the other ladies here. Um, but I, I, you know, like I grew up in southern Utah and my mother, she grew up LDS, but she grew up in California. And modesty wasn't like a memo she ever really got much. Like she didn't grow up with a lot of modesty rhetoric or standards. She wore sleeveless dresses you know, but when she went to prom and things like that, and that was acceptable um, in the 50s when she was a teenager. And so, you know, in the 70s, when I was a kid, my mom dressed me in short shorts and tank tops, and that was never really an issue. And, and I grew up in this really small town, and I couldn't, I couldn't go pick out my prom dress. And so my mom, when she went up to the big city, she picked out a prom dress, and she brought it home, and it was a sleeveless prom dress. And um, it, it caused something of a scandal because, um, like, my mom had my mom was a really good Orthodox Mormon lady, but she really hadn't 
been in young women's or heard sort of the increase in rhetoric about modesty, she sort of missed that. And so she bought what she thought was a really pretty prom dress for me. And there were a lot of the other ladies in the ward and it was, it caused a lot of talk, but my mom was kind of like, eh, who cares? You know, like you look good in that dress and just go and have fun. Okay. Yeah. After I wore the dress, um, like I, I just think we're a little bit more loosey goosey with me for, for modesty than for a lot of other people, even though there were a lot of things that my mom was pretty strict about. That was one where just her cultural experience was quite different. And so that's kind of interesting too, that like even within Mormonism, there can be some different cultural experiences depending on where you live and, you know, like what context it happens for you. But I do think pretty universally nowadays, modesty is a big, big deal. Um, Mm -hmm. So that has changed in the last 40 years. Um, It's gotten much stricter and it's gotten much more sort of like a purity test of like, if you don't follow these rules and you're not one of us and, you know, and, and that's unfortunate. Um, Like I see it, uh, you know, like I see it as a big part of sort of the culture of purity and um, in general of, and sort of the tendency that there has been lately for sort of the most conservative voices to sort of quote unquote win within Mormonism. You know, like if there's ever a question between two people about, well, is this a rule or not a rule? The person who's going to take the stricter um, interpretation of the rule is generally seen as the one who's more righteous or more um, obedient. And so that that's sort of I think there's been a sort of obedience creep that's happened where everybody sort of wants to be the the obedient, righteous one. And so everybody is moving toward more more rigid, more black and white, more stringent standards. That seems to be what's happening. Okay. So Karen, really quick, there was a quote that I was going to read. Like I said, I feel like when I was growing up in Provo, Utah in the nineties, um, that modesty was a big deal, but it wasn't as big of a deal as it is today. But this is a, there was a quote that I found from Elaine S. Dalton, who was in the general young woman's presidency when I was in high school. And so I feel like that's kind of when um, the the modesty rhetoric was really starting to pick up. So I just have a, a quick quote to show kind of the, the purpose of modesty talk in the LDS church. She says that the priesthood can be conferred on a man. This is true. They can be given authority, but they cannot have power unless they are pure. So it is very important for us to continue to talk standards, to teach them and to encourage them, young men and young women, to be guardians of virtue, their own virtue and others, because there are so many who say it is not a young woman's problem if a boy is doing something wrong. If she is immodest, it is not her problem if the boy does something wrong. Well, it is. We have to take responsibility for one another. We have to help one another. So I really feel like when I was in high school, the rhetoric of it being the woman's responsibility to make sure that the man stays in line um, really got fire. And so now on the internet, you'll see conversations about six-month-olds being in onesies and is that modest? And what if they look at their baby pictures and they see, oh, well, I wasn't modest when I was two, so I don't have to be modest now. And um, so it really has, has dialed up, which I think is very, very unfortunate and very damaging. 
Thank you uh, for that quote. That's extremely enlightening for people who aren't really um, familiar with what we're talking about and, and the extremes in which it can um, be prevalent. Nancy, were you going to say something? Yeah. Um, I So I think I'm a little older than Amy and, and Brittany, but not, but not quite as wise as Lisa. Um, let's see what I did there. Sorry. Bad joke. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but so I was a teenager and I felt like when I was a younger teenager that there was modesty rhetoric, but wasn't, it was kind of in my, what I perceived was that it was through the nineties as I was a teenager that the modesty rhetoric really ramped up. And so by the time I was an older young woman, um, it seemed to be this really important thing. And when I was a younger young woman, it just didn't, it, it was something that was discussed, but wasn't like hammered home. But by the time we, I was getting to be 16, 17, it, the, the rules about girls camp, um, church girls camp were being changed so that, um, you know, girls had to wear knee length shorts where it seemed to be in Maine where I grew up. Um, you, you couldn't actually find knee length shorts in a store. You know, somebody would have to hand make them. And that was the only thing that was going to be allowed um, at girls camp. And that just seems so bizarre to me. But I would say that one of the really difficult things um so there are a few other intersections of difficult things for me for modesty, which is that um, I come from a long line of people with mental health problems. And I'll, almost all of my near female relatives um, have eating disorders. And uh, my mother had eating disorders. And when I was a teenager, I had an eating disorder. Um, it was never actually diagnosed. But um, if you meet me today, I'm a short, curvy woman. And, I, and that's just fine. But um, when I was a teenager, I weighed about 70 pounds less than I do right now. And I was very, very, very slim. And and I often just didn't eat when I was living at home. And, um, and I really hated my body, like had a deep, uh, deep hatred of my body. And I felt that it was shameful and awful and that it looked weird. Um, no matter how skinny, you know, I could never quite get my body to look normal and, and I was never going to quite be able to get there. But when you add modesty rhetoric on top of that, I feel like I, it wasn't like I saw this tension of, yeah, I really have this really bad relationship with my body. How can I get to a healthier, better place? I felt like I existed in a framework of, I have this really bad relationship with my body and it's justified because I should hate my body because my body is sinful or my body might cause temptation or, you know, there's something about being a woman um, within this very male dominated space of Mormonism where I just shouldn't be taking up any space at all. And I was very conscious of that thought. Like I am not worth, I'm, I'm not like worth enough to take up space in Mormonism because women just, they just aren't. And, and, and some of that was a mental health problem which had nothing to do with being LDS or not being LDS. Um, but I felt like a lot of my really bad thinking patterns were reinforced by what I was hearing. And it took a long time and into my young adult years to be able to work through the idea that I was allowed to take, take up space and that, um, 
my body didn't have to look a particular way before I could learn to love it and have a better relationship with it. And so I would say that, you know, it's not that, you know, the religious stuff causes the problem, but it certainly helped perpetuate it in my mind. And I really covered up a lot, especially in my late teen years and young adult years as rhetoric mod modesty rhetoric kind of ramped up and escalated um, to the point where, where I finally was about to get married and went through the temple and got garments and was like, oh, and, and, you know, and trying to work through a better relationship with my body or at the beginning of that and being like, oh, like, you know, I could wear a cap sleeve t-shirt and that would be fine. You, you know, so, so I felt like I had gone to this really modest extreme um, and, and that wasn't healthy. That wasn't healthy for me emotionally. It wasn't good for my relationship with my body and, or for my sense of self. And so, you know, it's not that always our really, you know, bad religious ideas cause bad mental health though they can or contribute to that, but it certainly provided me a framework where I never felt like I should fix that or get out of that. Or, you know, I always wondered why other people didn't hate themselves more and maybe they should. And and that was just a terrible way of thinking. Thank you, Nancy. I didn't, I was going to say, I didn't struggle with the same kind of mental health issues that Nancy did. But one of the things that I, looking back, realized was, I don't know, it's a really weird, hard thing to talk about. But I was really beautiful as a young woman. And that was a very weird thing to be because I would get a lot of positive attention for that. But then it also brought a lot of attention to what I was wearing and how I was wearing it. And so like I had a, it was very uncomfortable for me. Like it both felt good and terrible a lot at the same time because of kind of what Nancy was talking about of like feeling like I shouldn't take up space. But then I got praised for like the way I looked, but then I also got subtly jabbed at for the way I looked a lot. And I never, there was never any clear way to sort of walk that line between being attractive and desirable and wanted by men because you were supposed to be that but also not being too desirable and not being, you know, like not being overly wanted by men or not having the wrong men want you or not. And I realized looking back that a lot of the ways that men talked about me was, was really inappropriate, but I also didn't understand that at the time either, you know, like that I was young and I, I, I thought that they were compliments, but often, it was weird, you know, like, so I don't know quite how to describe that, but it's just a really weird, like constantly uncomfortable, never safe, never being able to, you know, like in a culture where there's these checklists and you're supposed to be able to do things the right way, but there's never a right way to do it. There's just never a right way to be comfortable and do it right. That balance that Brittany was talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, Lisa. I'd like to thank Lisa Butterworth, Amy Cartwright, Nancy Ross, and Brittany Mangelson for sharing their stories with us on this, the first half of our panel episode here on No Filter, Sex and Faith, part of the Project Zion podcast family. 
We will continue our discussion with Lisa, Amy, Brittany, and Nancy on our next episode, which you can download from Project Zion Podcast. In the meantime, I'm Karen Peter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Music